You're listening to the Food Talk Show. And it's me, Sue Nelson, again, looking to see what I can eat and drink in the studio, although there isn't anything here right at this point in time. And uh, I'm joined by my fellow presenters, Holly and Ollie. Um, Holly Shackleton from Speciality Food Magazine. Hi, Holly. Hello. And um, Ollie Lloyd from Great British Chefs. Hi, Ollie. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good, good, good. Now, our guests today are Andrew Chesters of, well, the Utaka's the brand, I think it is, and Tazaki is the company. And the reason why we've got Andrew here is is uh, Ollie's always going on about Japanese food and his research. You, you just want to know more, don't you? Oh, I just think he doesn't it's, it's understand. An, it's an undercooked cuisine. It's undercooked, underbaked. Well, so have a good old it's often that. raw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we've got Ben Aveling of Radmore Farm Shop. Um, hi, Ben. Hello. We want to know everything about Sean farm shops when they're here. Well, I can help with that. Good. You can help with that. Johnny, good. Um, now, uh, if any of you haven't read Speciality Food Magazine, I'd like to ask the question, why not? It's a fair question. <laughs> you always say that. You're the editor. <laughs> um, Holly, can you just explain about your magazine and, you know, why it's there and what you're trying to help, you know, your sort of target audience if anybody hasn't read it? Yeah, so our, um, I mean, our main readership, the main readership of the print magazine are um, independent retailers. So farm shops, delis, food halls, um, and that could be anything from um, farm shop in the middle of nowhere, small high street deli, up to Fortnum Mason, Selfridges. Um, we go out to the buyers of multiples as well. So Sainsbury's, Waitrose, they'll read us too. And I think the mission that I'm on is to bring together producers and people doing amazing, interesting things in food with the retailers to kind of give them a bit of a platform. Because let's face it, if you're running a retail operation, it's um, it's pretty full on and it's long hours. How are you going to source and find out all these new products? I mean, that's... Well, exactly. So you're, you're a dating agency, aren't you, really? Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, obviously there are trade shows throughout the year Um there are probably three or four really big ones. Um, but independent retailers, they probably have quite a small team. They don't have the time to be spending a full day travelling up to London or, you know, travelling around, spending a full day out of the business um, in order to source new products. Um, and they could be finding out about new trends and new brands and stuff on social media. But I think I try to have social um, speciality food just bring everything together so it's in one place yeah so we're yeah. talking about trends and products and kind of market developments and news and um yeah it's, it's a big job now obviously you look gorgeously young goes without saying oh, thanks <laughs> well 30 but yeah but you've been doing this job for a little while what, 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 have you, what have you seen the difference between when you first started you know in that sector i think I guess quality and provenance and transparency um, just has a much higher profile than it did before. Um, I started on the magazine five years ago, five and a half years ago, and I feel like the speciality food scene is a completely different beast now and it doesn't seem like that long a period of time, you know, just a few years, but actually um, consumer trends and demands, I think they're becoming more demanding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and do you think that there's also been that change that as retailers start to try, the big retailers are trying to also differentiate themselves, they're also encroaching more and more on this sector? Yeah, they are. I think the independent sector, I think, they face quite a few issues because the the big boys are kind of treading on their toes a bit and they're, they're wanting to have a slice of the, the fine food pie and, you know, they're trying to source some of the same products and things like that. 
But then there's also the question of, you know, a farm shop or an independent retailer, they want to support their local food industry, uh, local food producers, but actually also they kind of want to be a one-stop shop. They want to be a good resource for the local community um, and the local community if they want to try exciting new cuisines. Uh, for example, you know, the independent retailer wants them to get them from their establishment rather than going down to the local supermarket. And is it important that um, an independent retailer has different products and brands from a supermarket I think it is because you you need to sort of have a reason to go there don't you it's like oh, I'm going to find something new and different that I can't find in the supermarket because the problem is if you have got the same product in the supermarket it's going to be a darn sight cheaper and so people think they're going to be ripped off whereas they're not of course there's all sorts of price practices going on in a supermarket Um, and and if somebody's going to compare like with like what you want to do is is constantly offer something different yeah so I so I'm guessing it's like a game of cat and mouse. You, you, you know, as soon as you offer, start to offer stuff and then the, the supermarkets catch up with it, it's like, well, we're not going to stock that anymore. We're now going to do something different and yeah. keep ahead of the game all the time. It's so difficult. It's, it's not an easy job from, you know, I haven't actually ran my own retail establishment, um, but, you know, from speaking to retailers, um, speaking to people within the industry, kind of the consumer demands keep changing. Um, and the role of the independent retailer in, in the community keeps changing as well. Well, you haven't run a shop, have you? But it's yeah. funny because we've got Ben here. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Ben. Now, you you uh, do you own Radmore Farm Shop? I do. Well done, you. So you've got a, a farm shop. Describe it to us. <clears throat> so obviously we're on the radio, so try and describe it. Take us, take us well, through the doors. <clears throat> I'll take you into Cambridge City first, yeah. which is where we are, um, where I'm from initially. The farm's next county in Northampton, where there's plenty of space to create and rear animals and such. <laughs> but um, if you can imagine, if you know Cambridge, there's a place called Mitcham's Corner, which is near where Strawberry Fair is, just behind um, where the colleges are. And we've got a great local clientele there. And being from Cambridge myself, I thought it'd be a great location for a shop. And I was, about 12 years ago, we had the crazy idea to to do something that no one else I've, I've actually had ever seen. And I also opened a proper farm shop in a city before. And we thought it was a bit of a gamble. We didn't really know what we were doing. But the idea behind it was is to, to bring good quality food to a city because actually you always have to travel out to a farm shop on a, on a farm, literally. And that's kind of where it started. And what's the difference between a farm shop and a deli, in your view? In my view, I, I personally think a farm shop should have an attachment to a farm. And I think that they should have more more idea of actually how things are made or actually make them themselves. I think that's kind of quite important. So the connection to the land is is, is, is short as possible? I, I think in so. A way, yeah. I think so, because... Farm shop implies that to the customer. So if you actually go to a farm shop or anything like that, you go there thinking, oh, this guy owns the farm. And if he doesn't, it actually seems a little bit fake. Um, that, that's just a sort of perhaps feedback. If someone says, oh, because in fact, the feedback we get is people are surprised we own our own farm because it's so common that people don't. Um, the misconception is that most a lot of places pop up um, a farmer diversifies by investing in, say, a barn and rents it out or puts a manager in or whatever. I mean, perhaps there is a tie to the, to the land in some cases, but generally that isn't often the case. But more, more often than not these days, people are starting them with the view to get more of their own produce through them, which is perfect. But you obviously sell stuff that you that, that more than you produce yourself. No, absolutely. In fact, I mean, what we actually sell from our farm now is tiny. As a percentage? Five. Five percent. Maybe. It's a tough one because I produce poultry on the farm, free-range eggs. My wife makes cakes and such. But we buy in loads of local fruit and vegetables. We buy in 
everyday goods, whether it's nationwide products or things like you might have in your magazine. Um, but five is probably me being un underdoing it. We, we Most of what we sell comes from something that we arrange ourselves, mm. um, sort of have the helm of, so I sort out the fruit and vegetables, if you like, mm. even though I don't grow it. Um, so we sort of distribute it centrally from the farm, if that makes sense. But So I've got sort of full control over the supply, so I don't sort of ring up and necessarily get it in like I would sort of crackers or uh, bottles of apple juice or such. But when we can't produce it ourselves, I try and look for somebody that's a bit like me um, that's got the right sort of finger on the pulse for the provenance. Uh, that, that's what's important. And has got an ethical stance on it. And, and Well, um, yeah, because um, I, I, like to, I like to look into these things. I'm part of the um, Cambridge Sustainable Food Partnership Board. It's something I was the first actual business in Cambridge year to win the, the, uh, the um, Sustainable Food Award. And when I look into anything, that's kind of where it comes from first to me, even down to my... Even like things like the coffees, I'm very particular about um, fair trade as a stamp and such like that. So it's, it's kind of looking for those similar boxes that people want ticked is where it started. But now it's become more of a passion and a mm. bit more, uh, a bit more of a search. Crusade yeah, well. crusade, that's a great word. Um, so, so you decided to open up a farm shop right in the middle of a city. Bonkers, isn't it? Yeah, it is actually. I was 21 I mean, years old. Yeah, if anybody's been um, to Cambridge or, or somewhere like York or Canterbury or something like that, you know, it's a very busy, crammed, medieval, you yeah. know, streeted place, beautiful place, very, very, very busy. And then you put a farm shop in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had a bit of a head start because our clientele in general are really interested in what we do. I mean, that was, a, that was a given when we opened there. We sort of knew that. There's a lot of interest in food even back then. Cambridge actually is sort of notoriously back then known for being a tad behind on the scene. So it was more of a chain place, um, which was is something still referred to now. Oh, you know, people say things like, oh, wow, look how unchainy Cambridge is now because 20 years ago everything was chains. And so we were sort of there at the beginning of when this all started, but we literally had no idea what we were doing. Wooden shelves that I put together myself and just put some vegetables on. It was it was ridiculous, actually. But but um, we both uh, run businesses, Ollie, and uh, I've started a business sort of, I think it's my fourth business now, later on, knowing how tough it's going to be and what I need in place and what insurance is and all those things and what it takes to employ people and had to put quite a lot of money behind uh, myself to do that. I started my first business, I think, when I was 23 and I didn't know what I was doing. And I, do you know what? I think you've got to be one or the other. Because <laughs> if you're in the middle, I don't know if you can make it work. If, if, you, if you're totally naive about it, actually, you can get away with it somehow when, you're, when you don't know what you're doing. Do you, do you think that? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm generalising, of course. No, I mean, I'm... I'm... I was just talking to uh, one of our, you know, an entrepreneurial guest of ours the other week, and, and we were sort of saying that on some level, um, there needs to be self-help groups for entrepreneurs because <laughs> God, yeah. because actually it, it it's bloody hard, and and some of the stuff that is really hard is stuff that you wouldn't even expect, mm. and you know, look, they're the obvious things, you know, finance, people, you know, probably being the two most dominant ones, but you know, I mean, if you sit down with any entrepreneur who's who's you know cut them, you know, done it themselves. I mean, you know, you you immediately have a connection with them, and you can all go. Oh, it's yeah. resilience oh, yeah. is the number one word. You've got to be resilient. I think it would be mad and mad, slightly mad. Well, I, I I haven't met you before, Ben, but I do think you might. He looks the latter one. Can you can you <laughs> see the pain behind my eyes? Yeah, do you yeah. know, I remember we we met the lovely guys from um, Hilltop Honey the other day, mm. and I always love I always love the introductions that, that that you know entrepreneurs have. Oh, I like, loved them. Yeah, they're great, aren't they? And, yeah. and the comment was was um yeah I was um yeah I was sort of a bad boy and um. At school, I had at no school. GCSEs. I had no no GCSEs, and then I decided to I was wandering around. Yeah, the and streets. I decided to make honey. 
It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. how do we get from here to there? And that's always the sort of, I think, what's what's lovely. Are you enjoying it? Me, I... I, I think you have to, is is that the, the right thing to say? I mean... Well, 20, the, the, 21, though. That was... It, it was crazy. Um, I mean, the, <laughs> um, we we just had a great idea, um, metaphorically on the back of a fag packet. We thought this could work. And we thought that there's, there's the scope there where people were asking for little bits and here and there from the farm. And we thought, well, let's just give it a go. And we took the plunge. And I've always been very um, confident and I, if you literally said, look, um, have a go at this, I've never done it before. I really don't care and I'll give it a go. I'm, I'm not afraid of failing. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest tips starting your own business is don't be afraid to because the amount of times you fail and have to get back up, I mean, it's daily. I mean, you know, every day that something hits you in the face. And I think that... But failure is imp- important in business. And I, th- actually, I, I think, think failure is learning. Failing quickly is important. Yeah. You know, so don't flog a dead horse for ages. And if it's not <clears> working, it's fine if something doesn't work. Don't change it, have an experiment with something else. You know, it's part You're of right. it, isn't I mean, it? I think that if you looked at Radmore 12 years ago compared to Radmore now, the amount of time I spend trying to come and have wonderful chats with people like you now, because actually this is a massive part of what I do now, getting out there, trying to spread the word of just generally what we do, um, as opposed to things like we never had an online shop before and now we do, and we we have the, the, we, we scale down all the production to do, being more high quality and specialist to trying to do everything. I mean, I used to just try yeah. and do everything, you know. So when you were 21, you're putting up the shelves yourself in the middle of Cambridge, but everybody's walking past going... Looking in the window, so Halloween. I wonder what they're doing. It's Halloween. My was mother-in-law it? was giving kids money out of her purse. It was hilarious. <laughs> she was there going, oh, just, you know, she's... She and just... what did you decide to sell first? <clears throat> well, we had one meat fridge, a shelf for vegetables, some freezers of scoopable fruit, who everyone's seen in farm shops. But to be honest, we kept it very typical farm shop. Whereas now we're just more, I suppose, a bit more of an independent grocers is probably a better way to describe. It's like an independent little mini supermarket. We sell just good quality foods in general. So you can go in and do most of your week's shop and we sell a lot of ethical cleaning products. So it got, we've gone from just sort of not really having a clue and just selling whatever we think people might want to buy from a farm shop to really sort of, I don't know, refined it to, a, mm. to an extent that we just sell what our customers now come and want. Holly, when you when you have got a, a deli or a farm shop or, or something like that, you must start by selling what you like, I'm guessing, because where, where, where are your other touch points? Yeah, I think... And, and then I guess you flip that round to really responding to what your customers seem to want the most. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, again, not having kind of run farm shop myself, I don't know whether... I don't know where you would do that market research before you're actually before you have that location and before you have the customers coming into your doors I don't know where and how you'd ask the question as to what people want and I think if you're if you're running that kind of business you probably like food and you like you appreciate the connection between you know the land and the food on the shelves so you you naturally have a, an idea of the kind of thing that you would buy like you say, and and then as time goes on, you will refine that and you'll develop that. And as the consumer wants change, um, so will the business. And do chefs do that, Ollie? Do you think in restaurants, or, or, or have they much much more got a niche and go, oh, isn't there something missing here? Therefore, we're going to open this up. Look, I think if you look at you know some of the greats, I mean Daniel Clifford being the great the great chef of Cambridge, you know Daniel has refined his 
his art, I mean, Michelin two star, I think it's been hit by floods about six times over the last 20 years because um, it's right on the banks of the camp. Um, you know, actually, I think chefs, then they, they eventually develop a style and they stick with that style and that becomes the story they tell. I think what becomes interesting, though, and I think this is the, one of the challenges I think that faces all of us, is the consumer's attitudes are changing. And so I think as a, as a farm shop or even as a chef or even as a brand, which we'll come on to in a second, actually there is no tarn, chance for complacency because mm. things that were acceptable five years ago are just simply no longer acceptable. And consumers' habits and, and, and attitudes, whether it's you know the rise of veg-first eating, concerns about sugars, concerns about salt, concerns about fats, this stuff is really, really, really on the march. And actually you can't just, and you know, this is the challenge, but do you rely on your own knowledge? I, I don't think you can anymore. Because actually, if you do, you can tell you what you know today, but you've got to be really looking pretty closely to see some of those early runestones of what's changing. Yep. Things are changing. And, <clears> and <throat> one of the things that you've seen um, change has been people want stuff delivered, don't they? Uh, they do. Um, and and you, you, you started responding to that? How did you pick that up, uh, so to speak? In my usual style, I just have a go hero, really. So what I... <laughs> You bought a drone and said, Amazon can do it, we can do it. Have you ever ever had that conversation about who you'd have in your zombie apocalypse team? No. So we see that when the kids were little, we go, right, who do you have in your... You know, zombie apocalypse team. So you get this apocalypse, right? And you've got to gather gather, gather together six people who you know are going to see through. You know, who going who to make sure Ben will be one of on them, wouldn't he? Yeah. You'd have Ben on your zombie apocalypse <laughs> thing because you just have a go at anything. Yeah, you just, absolutely. You just would have a go at anything. <laughs> I, 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 I joke with everybody saying that if I got landed on a, in the wilderness, I could I could find my own meat and process it and everything. But I think the thing with the online shopping was that I actually start. I just we just produced like a, a word document that we'd sent to our best customers when we were moving shops this is how the story started we were moving shops and we were out sort of technically out of business for about six months and we to, to try and keep customers we sent out a little sheet fill this in if you want anything i'll come to cambridge on a friday for example or whatever and then it sort of carried on when we reopened and then we got a very small style um retail online shop but i was very very adamant i didn't want it to be twee or I wanted it to sort of be proper so people could really use it functionally. And uh, so we invested quite a lot in it. Um, in fact, the, it was on the 6th of November last year, and we had it properly developed to be a, a proper a proper online shop you can go on and use. Um, and that's proved really good for a huge chunk of people who actually moved away from when they used to use us years ago. Um, and it's a good way to sort of, I don't know, people can use it to collect from the shop as well and browse your products. And it does make a huge difference, especially if you've got the refrigerated vans like we've got, and you can, and we do a lot of office deliveries. People like mm. there's a lot of the health in the office in the workplace things going on. Because because the figures, Ollie, um, definitely Britain Britons are now spending it's around about four billion a year having their food delivered to their homes, uh, saving them going out, and that's up seventy three percent in ten years. Um, even more when you look at direct takeaway and and food to yeah, go. I mean, absolutely. people never used to. Have, have that really mm. uh, now it's it's massive we've got Deliveroo and Ubo Eats and then we've got um, the home sort of cooking kits like um, Gusto and HelloFresh um, do you you need to sort of jump on and be part of this because that's what people are expecting it's interesting because I'm surprised you're in the online world in some ways because I think of the online world generally as being I mean you know more I think utilitarian in the sense that you know, the stuff that comes in from the Ocados, the Tesco's, the Sainsbury's is what I'll call your, you know, your, your, the brands that you need in your life, which might well be, you know, your Cheerio tomatoes or, your, you know, your, your taco noodles or whatever it happens to be. But it's not fundamentally the kind of 
the slightly more, I'm going to call it the more bespoke artisanal stuff that's being made in individual local farms and things. So I'm interested that you're doing that. And it's, and it's going well then. Yeah. It is. It's, it's picking up all the time, actually. But it's, it's one of those things that I don't go too crazy on it because there's anything I've learned over the years is things go up and they go down. And I think the online world could easily start to go down more than people anticipate. And I think that I want to keep it quite, quite, I don't know, steady, f- steady and yeah. focused. Mm keep who we have regularly happy, add, add when I can to it, update it when I can, and keep it going. And it, it's, it's a good thing to have on the side, but essentially our main outlets are what we do from the farm and the mm. shop itself. Do, do you think delis and, and farm shops are, are, are expected to deliver more now? Are you, are you seeing that at all? I think, yeah, I mean, diversification is so, so important for independent retailers. <clears throat> and I think, um, you know, if consumers need a reason to shop at independence rather than shopping at supermarkets, which is often a lot more convenient. So I'm seeing lots of um, independent retail establishments opening up cafes and coffee shops or doing tasting evenings or, you know... Creating th- a community yeah, around Yeah, creating a really. community. Yeah. Um, and if if an com- um, independent is also selling their stuff online or, you know, any kind of way that they can expand to beat supermarkets at their own game and, you know, do things a bit better, um, then, you know, I'm seeing a lot of that. But I do think they've got to watch the costs. It's got to be financially viable, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very much a case of, you know, this approach of give it a go, um, but kind of treading, not treading carefully, but just being sensible about it. Absolutely. And not putting tens of thousands of pounds into something that you're not quite sure is going to work. Right, just think, trial it. It's being reactive and, and kind of kind of knowing what will work, seeing how it goes, not putting, not setting out when you're 21 with a business plan that is going to, you know, you're going to stick to rigidly for the next 20 years. Um, just, yeah, being reactive and being flexible. And I think that's that's really important. And how much do you think these independents... <laughs> Uh, or is it, am I being too simplistic, um, a, a, a sort of um, somewhere where you go to get something special uh, as a present or, or something to treat yourself? And how much of it are they becoming more of, I need to go and do some shopping, I'm going to do quite a bit of it in this re- independent retailer? I think um, the latter is kind of, I think that's growing. I think mm. farm shops, traditionally, they've always been, not always been, but some have been a kind of one-stop shop um, if it's a rural area, there could just be this one retail outlet that, you know, the, the locals do need to buy kind of pretty much everything that they can from this one spot. But then if people are in a city centre or town centre going to a deli, for example, then they will want something to treat themselves with. Mm. Um, and how much of that is experiential? I mean, I think for me, one of the great things about that, which, which supermarkets are not very good at doing, is because people have a bit more knowledge who are inside these independent retailers, it means that they can do tastings or talk to people or or you can come in and smell what's been doing and and actually creating experience around the retail yeah. thing, not just not just sales. That's really important. And it's, yeah, it's the experience, it's kind of the education because if a farm shop is, you know, based on the farm or um, a brand um, is actually in a deli giving out samples and telling the story that's really important and you know you do have that in supermarkets you could have Nescafe handing out little samples but it's not the same it's not the same connection and I think from my um, chats with um, independents 
they really train up their staff. So, you know, the person actually running the business, they're in it because they love it. <clears throat> and they're stocking... It's the passion of it. Yeah, and they're stocking brands because, you know, maybe they know the person behind it, they know that the ethics are there and they, they share the same philosophies and the product is really good. And they train their staff in that as well. It's so, about telling stories, Ollie. It is, and I think this is the, one of the challenges I think that brands face in some ways is that, you know, you've got, you know the big retailers that control the consumer relationship on some level and then you've got small independents who are trying to build other stories and then actually you know the world that you know i think fmcg brands inhabit is you know actually how how do you tell that story and how do you kind of inspire people i think that's that's one of the difficulties which is you know i remember in the you know back in 2000 when i worked at unilever you know the question was should you know should unilever be going into retail and should they be trying to find ways of telling their story and how did they how did they connect with consumers and i think actually those challenges still live on still today. exist yeah um and, and what sort of cuisines are we seeing uh, in, in independence are people going in there uh, and going oh i fancy mexican or you know, are they expecting to see quite an international range or are they expecting it to be so to be hyper local and, and a reflection of or is it just all sorts of different things oh. i'm trying i'm trying to generalize aren't i it's uh it's changing i think I would say that independents are trying new cuisines, right. but equally they know that an amazing Italian balsamic vinegar will sell. Um, and, you know, they may have an Italian section and a British section. But, you know, I personally haven't gone into a deli or a farm shop and seen Korean food, maybe because or, they don't want to take that risk. Or Japanese food. Or Japanese food. Nice segue. I thought that as well. Nice. Not that obvious, was it? No. Um, <laughs> Going into Japanese and, and some of the other yeah. sort of cuisines, there's definitely some which we feel, it feels to me like we've embraced wholeheartedly. I mean, the Italian thing, particularly delis, you, you sort of almost expect there to be a huge Italian range, if, even if you are doing sort of local food. You're not seeing that in Japanese, are you, in your research? No, I mean, I think, I think what's really interesting about, you know, if you take you know, French produce, you take Italian produce, you even take Spanish produce to less, because brands like Brindisa, who, again, we've had on before, actually have quite strong presences, I would say, in some of the um, the independent sector through their, you know, through their various um, products, is that actually in the world of sort of Japanese, it's been absolutely wholeheartedly embraced in the out-of-home environment. So, you know, you've now got, you know... Sashimi, sushi... In, in, in places like... Negri, yeah. You know, Waitrose and Sainsbury's, there are bars there. So that's all happened, right? So... You know, a lot of UK consumers have eaten Japanese food, and yet it's not cooked as much at home as it could be, should be, or those ingredients aren't cooked as much at home as they could or should be. And that that's where our interest, you know, yeah. in it lies. So, Andrew, um, I know you used to be sort of MD of um, Tazaki Foods, uh, well, a while ago now, probably 15 years ago, and you've remained involved with them, and you're you're still working with them now. So you've seen that sort of story of Japanese food literally in the last, you know, nearly 20 years. What's, what's your view about the, the, the sort of UK reaction to Japanese food and what we feel about it? Well, I think it stems from the, uh, the history. If you compare it to, we've been talking about Italian, um, we haven't mentioned French, uh, but we've mentioned Spanish. So if you look at Europe, we go on holiday to Europe. Um, if you look at some of the more further afield uh, cuisines like China and Indian, We've had an indigenous population for uh, for decades and we've had pop-up shops and takeaways and to the extent that I think at the last measure there was something like 50,000 Chinese takeaways mm -hmm. in the UK. 
there aren't that many takeaways doing Japanese. So it's, it's doorstep arrival in terms of delivery has not been there. So the way that you experience Japanese is you go into a city typically and you go into either a food-to-go outlet such as a wasabi or an itsu and we deliver ingredients to both of those outlets. Or you might sit down in a posh hotel like Claridge's and have something that's fusion or Japanese and we deliver to those sorts of establishments. Or you might actually find yourself in an upmarket, upscale uh, restaurant such as an Obu and we deliver to those also. So I think you experience, I think you've hit the nail on the head, you experience it out of home and then generally speaking it transcends to being made uh, across homes, specifically in the likes of London. Uh, but what stops it, I think, is just this perception that it's difficult. And it's not difficult. Um, I think it starts with the fact that it's got Japanese writing on it sometimes, uh, not English writing. It sounds funny. People don't know how to pronounce it. And the one thing I've learned in my career in FMCG is if people can't pronounce it, then it becomes a bit of an issue. So our aspiration is to inspire people by making it a little bit more simpler, keeping the price down, getting it sold, not in farm shops, although I'd be very pleased to talk to you about your red nar fauna to actually <laughs> stock some of our products. Uh, but typically we will work with the larger retailers um, to get it out there amongst their shop and put it in a place in their store where it can be seen and it's visible. And, of course, we promote it and we can get people to the, put it in there. But the problem I've got with it in the supermarkets and all that is, is it's appalling quality. Mm. It's dreadful. Are we I mean, talking the sushi? Really, the sushi is yeah, yeah. really dreadful. And, and also the access to Japanese ingredients is minute. It's tiny. It's In bigger than you... It, to others. Yeah, other I mean, look, the Japanese, if you, I mean, if you walk down the, you know, I hate this whole concept, but the world food aisle. Yeah. I mean, we're Britain. We're like one of the countries which has embraced international food more than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. We don't need a world food aisle. We need stores that reflect the world's cuisines. Um, but actually, you know, if you... Japan would be, you know, it would be smaller than the Indian ingredients. By a long way. But it would be smaller than the Chinese ingredients by a long way. And the Thai. Now, Korean is definitely smaller than, than Japanese today. Yes. Uh, but, but it's interesting. But, because, you know, there are probably, what, 10, 15 core Japanese products in a Tesco's, would you say, or more than that? Yes, that's about right, actually. You didn't research. I think uh, 15 is a pretty average number, depending on whether you're talking uh, Morrison's or Asda. Or... And that's mainly, what, noodles... Wasabi. Seaweed. Seaweed. Yeah, absolutely. I tend to, because I'm a simple person, put it into simple buckets. So you've got soup, things like yep. miso, miso soup. Yeah. Uh, that also lends itself to using things like katsubushi and kombo, which is a dashi. Use it with miso paste. You can make your own um, soup. So you go from uh, from miso soup into miso paste. You've then got noodles, and you've got a whole host of noodles. You've got konyaku noodles, which are from the yam root. They're almost zero calorie. Uh, they taste of nothing. They absorb entirely what you put into it. And then you've got other noodles like udon noodles, soba noodles, buckwheat noodles. You then cross near countries, what I call near countries. You go from Japan into the likes of China where you've got ramen. And ramen's taken off tremendously mm. around, around London. But it's actually a Chinese dish that's infiltrated Japan and Japan sort of adopted it as its own. Mm. So there's this blend going on all the time um, in supermarkets. I, I think I disagree in terms of the quality. I think the quality can be less than that experienced if you go into the likes of wasabi or itsu. Um, but the, the retailers are recognizing that. So what they're doing is they're, uh, they're having partnerships with organizations that can help them. And we supply ingredients uh, from Yutaka. We supply ingredients to the likes of Sushi Gourmet. 
um, Sushi Daily. Sushi Gourmet works with Sainsbury's and actually prepares mm. it that day for sale that day. And Andrew, so, I'm really so sorry. I, di- I disagree with you entirely. The, the quality is, is dreadful. I, I, to from, the point from, where I, I absolutely refuse to eat it. And, and the reason is, for me, Japanese food is about the, the highest quality you can possibly get because it's, you know, it's either flash coats or it's it, or it's raw and therefore you cannot get away with having anything that's less than an amazing quality ingredient but people won't pay for that for lunch so so what they do is they really cut corners and you get the most you're talking about sushi and sashimi though Jen. and all that I, yes i'm not talking about the ingredients i'm talking about going out and having that for lunch so you've got sandwiches and you've got sushi and you've got whatever and the, and and the sort of you know japanese to go is rubbish um the ingredients are you know the ingredients but but you know, that's putting a lot of people off, I think, in terms of... Because if you're not in a city centre and, you you know, you don't live in London or Manchester or whatever, what's your access to Japanese food? It, probably that's your but I, point. But I, I think what's complicated is, is that the, in the world of Japanese, you've got some extraordinary high-end restaurants. So if you were talking about the Nobus and you're talking about, you know, like, I mean... You know, I've spent a lot of time in Japan. I've spent a lot of time in you know New York, where there's incredible Japanese restaurants, and that top end stuff is extraordinary. It is absolutely. What I think is, is 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 weird in the world of Japanese is there's super high end, and I'm talking here about, mainly about the sushi world, mm-hmm. and then there's really quite bog standard, right? And I think there isn't anyone who's yet come in the middle of that range to try and really. No, now there's some I think in the world of ramens that I think like Bone Daddies and places like that that I think are exceptional. Uh, there's a new one on Upper Street that I'm in love with at the moment. I never can't remember. Um, but I think so. Where I don't think I, I, where I would say is there's a complication. I think sushi is one thing, but I think Japanese ingredients actually what we're able to get in terms of the noodles and, and some of that stuff. I think well, is, a bit, is is different. Yeah, I agree. And I and I think that the, the biggest challenge with, with Japanese food is it's not sushi and sashimi. Like that's just like that's just one territory. And I think. What, what, you know, it's a bit like saying, you know, Indian food is chicken tikka masala, you know, no, no. and none, uh, and you know, it's yeah. not. And, 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 and what I answer, what, why do you think Japanese food hasn't, why, why isn't there the kind of the broader understanding of Japanese mm. food here? Well, I think it starts with some of the things you're talking about. I, I, I think we're addressing some of the quality, the retailers addressing the quality on sushi. It's made daily using fresh ingredients and high quality ingredients. So I would like to make that point. Um, but actually, it, it seems to be limited to su- the experience of sushi, yeah. and people take a little while to broaden out. So as they go to your favorite restaurant uh, and they experience ramen, then there's an opportunity to buy a ramen kit off-shelf. And what we're seeing is that there's a whole drive towards more street food and more um, kit form, cook-at-home, complete kits. And Mexican drove it in terms of the shelf in supermarkets with their taco shell kits. And we've seen an explosion beyond Mexican into cuisines such as Korean and such as Japanese. So we sell a sushi kit for two. It's got precise ingredients in the in the pack and it's got precise instructions on the pack. And the only thing you need to buy, I'm assuming, is the fish. It's the fish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I guess there's an issue in itself. You know, fishmongers have died a long time ago and you're having to then shop around for getting your high-quality tuna. And how do you do that? Well, it's not just tuna. You can buy other things. You can buy prawns. And we actually sell prawns, frozen prawns, freshly frozen, and they're very, very high quality. Mm. But it does, I admit, it does, it does test you somewhat. Well, I absolutely love Japanese food. I mean, I think it's, it's clean and it's healthy and there's something about it that I really, really like. And, and yeah, I don't think of doing it at home. But I'm it's so sure aligned why. with trends. I mean, this, this is what I'm interested in is it's so aligned with 
and this is my kind of frustration with it in some ways, which is, and why we keep returning to it as great British chefs, is we feel that if you look at Japanese cuisine, it is bang. If you'd invented a cuisine to meet the needs of today's consumer, yeah. you'd almost invent Japanese cuisine, right? But somehow it has not yet hit the consumer home market. And it's, this is this is that rub that we've got mm. with it, which because it's there's so many, like miso, it's just one of my favorite things to have in the fridge. Like it's just... You know, you can do so much with that. There's work that, that, that I mean, no no Japanese chef would call Japanese, but but you know, it's just a great ingredient to be playing with and 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 actually use. But you see, if people came round to dinner, I'd cook all sorts of things, and you know, I've, I've been cooking for a long time, uh, and I think I'm quite an accomplished cook. I never dream of cooking Japanese for somebody or making Japanese, and I think part of that is I'd be frightened that a lot of people around the table would decide they didn't like it, even if they'd never had it, and and so 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 maybe. It feels too adventurous somehow. You, how urban do you think Japanese food? Oh, very, very. I think it's centred around the outlets that we've talked about. That's your primary experience. That's your exposure. And then we take it home from there. I think also it's... But yet young... your brand is sold in Tesco's, Waitrose, Sainsbury's. It's sold in Asda and it's sold in Morrison's. Yeah. Um, so but the, the range is bigger in those multiples that are skewed further south yeah. around the major conurbations. Mm. And we sell, uh, we're growing year on year. You mentioned the number 15 in terms of number of products. That's pretty much average uh, against the top two retailers. But we're talking about another, a further 12 products at the moment that they're looking to range in the next six months. So I think it's growing. I don't think they'd list them if it wasn't growing, but we've got a long, long way to go. And the only way we can do that is to concentrate on what we do concentrate on, which is making high-quality ingredients well-packaged um, that are priced at a price that is maybe removing some of that barrier to risk mm. that you're talking about. Um, just finally, um, over to you, Ben. Would you stop stop Japanese in the middle of Cambridge? Well, <clears throat> yes, it's a simple answer. <laughs> then we should talk. I I love Japanese food. I'm not I'm not accomplished at Japanese food. I've I've cooked for years. I've been a chef. You'd give it a go though. I do give it a go. Just give it continue I, the theme. I, I actually do. And actually, one thing I was going to point out, it might be no help at all, but I think it's a great gateway for healthy eating. Yes. Um, yeah. I've lost about five stone actually. I mean, we probably don't believe it. I was even bigger than this, and. Um, I really turned to just general Asian cooking and specifically went to uh, Japanese to, for the bang for your buck for flavour versus calorie. And that yeah. sounds crazy, but that's for no, me, that's when right. I think Japanese, I think full flavour, I'm going to feel full and my calories are half of anything else. It's, that, that's, I don't know about anyone else, but in my head, that's what I think of when I think Japanese. And I think that's what Ollie was trying to say. Yeah. It should be, if anything, and it's it should spicy, be spicy. Which, which, yeah. you know, look, we, you know, we as a country, we love, we love our Indian, you know, Thai curries, you know the Japanese. But I mean, we're, we're already comfortable with spaghetti or noodles. We're already comfortable with tipping in sauce. We're already comfortable with these kind of basics. I mean, I cook to a different level to that, but I think there's 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 steps there that people will. Well, that's why we're might... scratching our heads, aren't we, Ollie? Yeah. <laughs> Seems to have everything that we need, and it doesn't seem to be being embraced. I'm yeah, a little but, bit frightened but, of it. Perhaps. But I also think, interestingly, one of the things that you guys, you know, you are a bit of a lone wolf in this area. You know, obviously there are a few more in the miso area than sure. you guys, but it, in some ways, you know, there isn't a big, you know, like the miscans of this world sure. don't really do anything here, even though they're the world's largest producer of vinegar. There are lots of brands like that that actually, while they have a presence through their ownership of other brands, you know, they, they feel that there are. I mean, I mean, there's a new, um, there's a new Japanese center out in Westfield, which is yes. Ichiba, which Ichiba. I think is amazing. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, they just almost there needs to be more of you guys fighting this fight. It's almost 
It's the last thing you want, but in some ways it would. Well, you say it's the last thing we want. I agree with you entirely because we can't do it by ourselves. And if you take someone like Itsu, um, Itsu are a competitor at retail and a customer of our business. Mm. So we supply ingredients to them and they came to us looking for help to get into retail and we, we help them willingly. And they're not the only one. The miso tastes of this world are exactly the same. But what I think what Utaka offers that's different to anyone else is a very broad range, mm. ranging from miso through soups, through noodles. Even in the frozen category, we do gyoza. Gyoza, yeah. And the gyoza God, is literally for. Right. I mean, for me, they are, they are, that, that for me is my idea. Of, that's, that's my ready meal, which is gyoza. My kids love them. I mean, they're just, they're just such right. crowd pleasers. Soggy and well, crispy. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. I think on, on my, my Facebook page, personally, I do live demonstrations um, of things like butchery, um, cooking or whatever, you know, here and there I've done bits and bobs. And if you could do, uh, this is what I think would be quite approachable, dumbed down, easy ways of creating Japanese food. Mm. Well, it sounds like I've paid you because that's a really good intro into saying that if anyone was interested in looking online and searching Yutaka, Y-U-T-A-K-A, on YouTube, you'd see a plethora of um, fantastic food mm. videos. Quick, snappy, 45 um, seconds uh, intro into the food. There you go. Brilliant. That's yeah. a good way to end the programme, isn't it? Very clear. Very good. Very clear. So, um, Andrew Chesters, thank you so much for joining us. That's Tazaki Foods. Um, tazakifood.com. We'll, of course, put links from the Food Talk website so you can have a look at that and go onto YouTube and start learning how to cook Japanese, everybody. Um, if you're anywhere near Cambridge, you need to go pop in and see Ben. Anybody's welcome to come and say hello. Aren't they, Ben? Yeah. <clears throat> Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, hello. Yep. So you can do Radmore. digital or real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Radmore Farm Shop. And um, you and Vicky. We should mention Vicky because it's not just all about you, is oh, it? She's the brains. I, she, she's even picking me up from the train station. There so, you, go. you know, it's literally. Well done, Vicky. I'm just, yeah. the, I'm just so, the muscle. So if you go in uh, into the farm shop, you'll see Vicky's Bakery and Ben's Butchery. So we <laughs> know not, where the divisions are there. Uh, not quite, but it, it's more of a retail. We don't actually have a counter, unfortunately. We're a bit, yeah. bit small. But yeah. So well done to you for just. Just going well, for it. Thank you for having me. I've had oh, been very good. Thank excellent. you. Really, really good stuff. Um, and so you've been listening to the Food Talk Show. As you know, I don't have to say it every time, really, do I? We're syndicated across dozens of radio stations in the UK. And you can download our weekly podcast uh, from iTunes, Spotify, and the podcast app on your phone, as well as a wonderful Great British Chefs website. Anything inspired you uh, to, to write about in one of the next editions of Speciality Food magazine? Well, or do you might have a little conversation about Japanese yeah I'm just possibly. thinking as soon as I get home I'm gonna it's, get it's out. an interesting question isn't it yeah just get out the miso start yeah. experimenting yeah absolutely so thank miso you miso and aubergine that's why oh yeah um. miso glazed <laughs> so thank you to Holly Shackleton of Speciality Food Magazine thanks again as usual um, Ollie Lloyd of Great British Chefs thanks for joining us and uh, if you know someone doing something groundbreaking in our food sector please get in touch with us via Twitter on at Food Talk Show and if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts now going back a good few years it's foodtalk.co.uk get some Japanese food and have a good week bye now bye <laughs> Thank you.